Hello, I'm Damien Fantato, Digital Editor of FT Advisor, and welcome to the first edition of the FT Advisor podcast of 2020. We're going to take the opportunity of entering a new year, and indeed a new decade, to reflect on some of the things advisors can expect in the pipeline for the coming year and maybe even the next 10 years. And I'm going to be encouraging some wild speculation from our guests. With me to discuss this are the Personal Finance Society's Director of Policy, Matthew Connell. Hello, Matthew. Hello. And Chartered Financial Planner, Darren Cook. Hello, Darren. Good morning. There are several ongoing issues in, in the world of regulation, if we, can, if we can start there. And one of them that you've identified, Matthew, is um, the, the liabilities that advisors face. And do you think that there could be some movement on this in 2020? I think so. I think I think for, for many years now, the regulation around compensation has been a bit of a Heath Robinson type system with elements of compulsory um, professional indemnity insurance, uh, elements of, of advisors capitalisation um, paying towards towards compensation, and then of course the financial services compensation scheme. And the way they work together has, has always been a bit of a dark art. Um, the, the rules around um, all these elements um, have stayed broadly the same with a few tweaks here and there, but the way in which they've been interpreted behind the scenes um, has uh, had to had to change and had to adapt as as markets change, particularly as professional indemnity markets get get harder and and, and softer. And I think the result of this has has been a, a constant concern at the back of the minds of of all advisors, um, regardless of how well or how badly the, the business is run. All advisors have this threat hanging over them that that at certain times, um, certain aspects of this regime could disappear or, or become very difficult to manage, particularly around professional indemnity insurance. Uh, and I think we're at the point now where, where, where this really is being a major contributor to the, to the advice gap because it's holding back organic growth in the market. And, and so I think um, 2020 has to be the year where regulators and, and legislators together pay some real attention to how, how the system is built and, and, and make it more manageable and more predictable. Mm-hmm. And Darren, as a financial planner, how would you like that issue to be addressed? Oh, uh, I'd like to pay a lot less than I do. I know that. Um, I'd certainly agree that the um, the FSCS compensation scheme is, is a busted flush. It has been for some time. Uh, expecting advisors uh, to pick up the uh, pick up the tab for pretty much anything and everything is is just not sustainable. We've had some some good news this morning. Uh, just put a date stamp on on when we're recording this. We've had some good news this morning on the um, uh, London Capital and Finance. It seems uh, very few of those people will be compensated um, via the FSCS. I feel sorry for those that are not going to be compensated, but clearly quite relieved as an advisor that uh, I'm not going to be asked to put my hands in my pocket again to compensate another £240 or so. The way it's put together at the moment, uh, the regulation is disjointed. It's not not thought through. Um, The compensation scheme isn't being funded properly. Hopefully, the, the the stuff that's happening with the mini bond market, the stuff that's happening with DB transfer market, will actually bring all of that to a head in the next year or two, uh, and we'll actually start to see some action. Although we know the FCA moves like an iceberg, so uh, I'm not so confident something will actually happen this year. But hopefully, we'll start to see something happen this year, and maybe some uh, some discussion around what can replace. And Matthew, what, what do you think will happen? I think ultimately, the fiction of each sector paying its own compensation bill will have to be addressed. So as, as Darren said, you know, a lot of compensation that, that arrives at the, at the doorstep of the FSCS is, is 
nothing to do with the with the sector that's that's paying for the for the compensation. There'll be stuff that's happening way outside the, the regulatory perimeter or, or on the on the verge of the regulatory perimeter, and it just gets stuck to to, to whatever sector within the regulatory perimeter is is unlucky enough to to pick up the bill at the time. And so I think I think what we'll eventually move to is is a system where there's a, a very simple levy on on all funds under management or all retail funds under management. So you look at the whole of the financial services sector, all the funds that are being looked after there, you, you take a very small levy from that number. And then instead of arguing about which sector is going to pick up the bill, uh, which is a fairly meaningless argument in the end, um, you have the much more constructive argument about um, wh- which consumers get compensation and, and which don't. Uh, and then once that argument is had, that the levy comes off all the funds under management, and that's a very small percentage of a very large number. And as as a sector, as a, as a profession, as a, as an industry as a whole, we we see a much more predictable, less impactful, less volatile consequence of of that compensation being paid. Does that sound appealing to you, Dan? Certainly does. Uh, predictable is <laughs> just that bit is uh, is quite appealing, to be honest. Compensation bills are rising at the moment. I don't see it under the present system them falling for quite some time because there's still a lot of uh, a lot of bad stuff out there to come through from the sit market uh, this one this advisors are responsible for some of this um not necessarily advisors that are currently in the market but advisors that were around five ten years ago using unregulated investments within sips or were setting up the sip and an unregulated introducer was was putting the investment in there but we know that that's coming back and being paid out by the fsds uh, they're not allowing the, the claim of, well, we only set up the SIP, we didn't advise on the investment. That's that's not not washing, and I don't think it should, frankly. But, uh, there's still a lot of that out there, I think, that will come through because those investments are now starting to fail and people are starting to claim. So there's still a lot of bad news to come onto the FSCS and, and fall on our doorstep, and that's only going to result in rising bills for advisors, which um, then starts to have an impact, obviously. Either they have to swallow that within their profitability or pass those costs on to clients, which is neither of which are particularly acceptable to the market as a whole. Finally, on this particular topic, Matthew, do you think that the um, FCA is likely or able to do something about the fact that professional indemnity insurers are, are leaving the market? In the past, what the FCA has done is it's redefined slightly what it means by professional indemnity insurance. So it's maybe been a bit more lenient about the kind of excesses that that, that people can take on and, 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 and the actual sort of terms of the... Of, of the policy so you've had almost a sort of as the markets got harder you've had a slight hollowing out of the professional indemnity policies i don't think the fca's appetite for for, for doing that is is maybe as strong as the fsa's appetite was to do that in the past but nevertheless something's got to give either there's got to be a, a fudge or there's got to be a significant reduction in in access to advice um as as firms have to to, to remanage their own liabilities or the FCA and I think this is out the FCA's control to some extent the FCA and legislators have, have got to really look at the fundamental uh, foundations of the of the legislation and and do a root and branch reform and the other change that you've identified Matthew is the to the FCA register um, yes. prompted by yes. the senior managers regime mm. um, uh, tell me a bit about what exactly is going to happen and how you think it's going to affect um, advisors there is I mean I guess the senior management regime as a whole is I think a, a, a good thing the Treasury's decision, Treasury's original decision to extend senior management regime from banks to to advisors and all financial services firms, the, the FCA's handled that well in a, in a fairly unbureaucratic 
way. And, and what they've asked firms to do is really focus on uh, what the real responsibilities within a firm are and, and, and just carry on looking at that. Um, look at who's, how, how responsibilities for good consumer outcomes, are, are good client outcomes are, are, are distributed within the, within the firm, who's, who's responsible for that, and in practical terms, how the right outcomes are delivered by individuals and what the res- responsibilities are there. Uh, and I think that's an ongoing thing. So it's not just firms getting compliant for the introduction of the senior management regime. It's an ongoing thing. It's keep on asking difficult questions about when things go wrong, what should have happened, who's responsible for putting it right. So that's an ongoing thing. And I think that's potentially a very constructive conversation mm-hmm. between between regulators and advisors. Can I, um, can I sorry, on that one? Yeah. I utterly disagree with that. It's a complete and utter waste of everybody's time. For small advice firms like mine, guess what? I'm responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. So nothing changes. Yeah. For larger advice firms, guess what? They probably already knew who was responsible for what because it was already written down in job descriptions. So really, what have they actually achieved and what have they actually changed? Bugger all. It's a great piece of legislation that basically tells people to do what they were already doing. I don't actually think it's achieved anything for anybody. A few small, medium-sized advice firms, maybe they've had to absolutely linearly define, actually, that's your, I'll, I'll tick the box and say that I'm responsible for that, and I'll tick the box and say that I'm responsible for that. Whereas realistically, the only difference was it wasn't written down. They probably knew it within a small, within a medium firm, but they hadn't actually formally written it down. But for small firms, guess what? I'm still responsible for everything. So I'm, I've had to go on the FCA register and just tick some boxes and say, yes, I'm responsible for it all. Well, guess what? I was anyway. Mm. And in a large firm... I don't think it actually makes any difference whatsoever to anybody. I think that's a fair point. But given the FCA, I mean, I, I suppose thinking where the FCA started from, they they had to, int- to introduce the senior managers regime from the banks in, into advisors and other firms. So given they had to do they had to do something, I think they've they've tried to do it in a way, like you say, where, where people are doing the right thing already. They've tried to do it in a way that that minimizes the amount of paperwork and, and, and faffing around as, as much as they could. And in terms of the impact that you you you, you mentioned that there could possibly mm-hmm. be on the register, and there's going to be this new directory yes. this, that's being rolled out this year, um, because some advisors are going to disappear completely from the register. Yes, and that's um, I, I think it eventually will be in a in a good place, but unfortunately there there is this sort of transition period. So we we had a situation before before 2015 when the when the regime came in banks where where every advisor was on the register, and and if people wanted to look up their advisor on on the, on the register, wherever their advisor came from, they, they could find them on the register. Then the regime got introduced for banks and, and banking advisors disappeared off the, the register, or at least the register wasn't updated um, for them. And, and then as we moved into all advisors being certified, so none of them being cleared by the, the FCA in advance, uh, all advisors were, were gradually going to disappear from the from the register, the FCA changed its mind about that and decided that actually it, it wanted a, a, an official record of, of all uh, regulated uh, advisors, and it's bringing that in through through the directory, which will come in at the end of this year. But there will be a gap in terms of, of where people can go to absolutely find the definitive information about whether an advisor is 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 regulated or not over the next twelve months. I guess the important thing is that that professional bodies have have always kept registers of of their members, and in many ways those. Those registers have much richer information than the, than the old FCA register, which was never originally designed to be particularly um, consumer friendly. So, for example, the registers kept by professional bodies have information about advisors' qualifications, the areas they they, they specialise in, and so I think that's that's the big task for us over the next year is to make it clear to consumers that although the FCA 
they might hear about the FCA register or the FCA directory disappearing, that there's still a lot of really rich and really good information out there to be to be had from the um, from the professional bodies. Mm-hmm. And Darren, do you think this is going to have an effect on um, uh, advice businesses, advisors such as yourselves at all? Uh, yeah, to an extent. I've heard, you know, I've certainly heard of one or two advisors where clients have contacted them and said. You're not on the red, you're not on the director anymore. You didn't tell me you'd stopped advising. I don't think actually the public used it that much. Uh, we tried to encourage them through the scams campaign and so forth. We always encourage people to go and check that your advisor was on the FCA directory. Well, you can't do that anymore. I'd agree that the the, the directory as it stood wasn't fit for purpose because it wasn't written in English. And actually, for a client to go on there and, and look for their advisor, other than to find that the advisor was on there, they really couldn't understand what the rest of it meant. And we saw some of that with the British Steel guys being able to, you know, check, trying to check whether an advisor was um, had permissions to do DB transfers and or whether they were trying to pass that away to somebody else, whether their permissions had been removed or not. It wasn't really very clear to some of those guys what was happening with their advisor and the DB uh, petitions. So they had, the, the register as it stood wasn't fit for purpose, but having a gap of 12 months is, is just not acceptable. Yes, there are alternatives, the PFS directory, will, but that only lists PFS advisors. Unless you know where your advisor holds their state and professional standing, you've got to go and find that advisor on that directory. The fact that the regulator cannot provide one centralised, in English, directory of all registered financial advisors in the UK is just mind-boggling. What do I bloody pay my FSCA fees for? And the cost that they were quoting for what it cost them to maintain it, it's just outrageous. Who were they paying to do this work? It was just stupid the money they were paying. And again, this comes back to some of the stuff that the FCA does. It's, well, it ain't their money. So they don't really care about what they spend sometimes. That's the feeling we get as advisors. It's, just, it's a blank check to them. And if somebody comes along and says, this is going to cost you 50 grand, and they'll say, well, okay, 50 grand, we'll pay it. Because it ain't their money that they're spending. And if they need more money, they just come back and knock on my door and say, oh, you need to pay a bit more money this year, Darren. And I can't say no. I can't challenge him and say, well, why'd you spend 50 grand for that when you could have got it done for five? Yeah, I mean, that that was a, one of the things we went back on in the in the consultation was that the, the, the costings did seem very strange, given the amount that uh, other organisations are, are, are spending to maintain, for example, directories of members for, for professional bodies. It, it did seem very out of whack, the numbers that the FCA were quoting. Um, and I guess that there is an issue for the FCA that this is all certified individuals, in, including a lot of... Uh, individuals within firms who who aren't customer facing and, and and firms that are being brought into this uh, into this system for the for the first time. So I, I can imagine why the FCA would end up spending more money than than say the PFS would on it on its directory. But nevertheless, the scale of the costs was um, just, just to slightly embarrass you on the PFS directory. Uh, an advisor I know um, because this was highlighted recently went to update his details on the PFS directory. And that was asked whether he was independent, multi-tied, or um, tied agent. Right, so yeah. That's... Multi-tied and tied agent haven't existed since RDR. Mm. That, well, thanks, Darren. That's, that's, that's an important thing for me to know about, and I'll, I'll certainly take that back and have a look at, at how we're, we're asking the questions and how we're structuring the information. That's, that's an important one for me to know. Thank you. There we go. More broadly on the issue of advice, the past decade has seen plenty of changes in, in the advice profession. There's been the Retail Distribution Review, obviously MIFID two, the development of the profession of financial planning. Darren, how do you feel that advice itself is going to develop during 2020 and uh, indeed into the 2020s? 
I think you're right to say that the RDR has, has generally moved the profession forwards. I think we have become a profession from being a, a, an industry and sales, or we are becoming. I think we're still on that journey. We're not there yet, but we, we are moving towards being a profession. Credit to the, the PFS, more people are becoming more qualified, more people are becoming chartered, more people are becoming more educated technically about how to help clients, and that's a very, very good thing. So uh, you know, hats off to the PFS and other, regu- other um, professional bodies for, for moving that forwards. And I think that will continue. I think more people will continue to go down that trend. Personally, I think we're also moving more towards being about planning, not products. More and more people are moving into financial planning space uh, and, and having financial planning conversations with clients rather than product-based, com- product-based conversations with clients. That again is a trend that's happened over the last few years, and will continue to continue to go forward. And more and more people are starting to use cash flow planning software as part of their conversation with clients and helping clients visualize their future, having life conversations with clients and visualize their future and what it actually means. So that I think will continue to grow over the next five, ten years. What's starting now. Uh, and I hope we'll start to even replace financial planning to a degree or work alongside financial planning is the more financial well-being movement that's nascent uh, Chris Budd's body that's just starting now to work alongside existing professional bodies but to start talking to people about their financial well-being, not their wealth. It's not just about your money. It's about actually making sure that you're using your money to do what you want to do and make your life and your health and your mental well-being better. And I hope that that will, will grow alongside financial planning. I think I absolutely agree with that. And I think for professional bodies like the Personal Finance Society, there's a big challenge there too uh, in the way we think about the kind of ongoing continual professional development that we, that we offer and the kind of um, qualifications that we offer as well that, that we've got to start thinking about, you know, not just teaching people technical knowledge uh, and technical understanding, but, but also uh, find a way, a meaningful way of, of increasing that, that awareness of those, those well-being issues and how they tie into the, to the sort of harder, more mathematical bits of, the, of, of financial planning. So some form of qualification or not, or exam maybe on this issue. Um, yeah, yeah and, and and not just a sort of standalone one, but how how that infuses throughout all the all all the qualifications and and all the exams and and indeed all the ongoing professional development that we offer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and credit again to the PFS. Um, I think it started on well, obviously with Keith and and the Sharon Sutton's presidency a couple of years ago, with the um, you know financial planning coming to the fore during her presidency, um, and um, the, the setting up of the power event. Uh, and the financial planning practitioner panel and so forth, all moving the PFS down that financial planning pathway and starting to move away from just the technical qualifications, but embed financial planning in as, as part of the process and part of the education process with its uh, with its advisory community, which is excellent. Absolutely, yeah, thanks. Brilliant, well done for that. Mm. Uh, and Matthew, do you see that there are any particular regulatory changes that are going to help or hinder these developments? What the FCA is doing is producing fewer rules and looking more at uh, the culture within firms and and how firms um, conduct themselves in terms of, of producing good outcomes for for consumers. So and 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 I think the FCA is trying to, as much as it can to inform that process through sort of its publications on, on on vulnerable customers and and its financial lives consumer research. I think in some ways the regulators always a, a little bit 
behind the practitioners on on this one because the the professionals are sat in front of the clients and seeing these these issues playing themselves out in in real life um, day to day. Uh, whereas the regulators are in a position where they're, they're they're having to to do that more through sort of consumer research and and it can kind of one one remove. But nevertheless, I think the FCA's doing you know far more than most regulators across the world to really look at um, what it means to be a, a customer and and look at the, the whole customer and, and and all the things affecting their lives not just the, uh, the the narrow financial elements and Darren if you think that you're a financial advisor who wants to uh, take part in this movement towards more uh, life planning rather than just focusing on finances do you feel that there's the uh, the exam background there the the, the cpd that uh, you need there do you think that the regulator would give you the sort of support for want of a better word i'm not sure that the regulators got to grips with life planning financial planning side of things yet they're still very product focused to an extent i don't think that's necessarily a problem the regulator is there to, uh, to ensure good consumer outcomes and that is, at the end of the day, even with whatever financial planning and life planning you're doing, there's a product that has to underpin that. And if the FCA can regulate the product bit, then fine, just let us go on and do the financial planning bit. I'm not sure how you'd actually regulate financial planning anyway. In terms of support, um, I think it's growing. I think there's there's more out there. It was a little bit of a, a niche, um, and you had to go and hunt it out, certainly when I started to get into it five, six years ago. I think there's more and more available. As I previously mentioned, the PFS Power events um, and the Festival of Financial Planning they had a couple of years ago was excellent. I understand that's coming back this year rather than the sort of more uh, provider product focused events starting to move into events that are more focused around the client and, and delivering outcomes for clients through financial planning. It's hard to examine, I think, to a degree, although obviously we do have the um, certificate that's run by the CISI. And I must confess that's something that I've been intending to do for a couple of years and I will get my head down and get it to get it sorted this year. So that's a more skills based ex- uh, testing for, than sort of the technical knowledge from what I understand. So I think there is there is stuff out there and there is support out there. But at the moment, you maybe got to go and hunt it out and want to do it rather than it just being mandatory. Um, whether we'll ever get to a point where some sort of financial planning skills based assessment is mandatory i don't know i suspect not for a long time i think that's that's a really good point it's it's not not necessarily something the world of exams and qualifications is very much about right answers and and wrong answers and and the kind of skills that that darren's talking about are much more sophisticated than that so it might not necessarily be a, a traditional exam or a traditional qualification it might be about more more ongoing things like mentoring like sort of peer review and i think like darren says that the pfs events are, are designed not just for advisors to be talked at but most importantly for advisors to and financial planners to, to, to talk to each other and so an a well-designed event that that leaves a lot of space for people who are, who are really exploring this and uh, and really experiencing it firsthand to have really high-powered conversations amongst each other is almost as important as, as setting out a syllabus that says you've got to learn A, B, C, and D. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. The events, the financial planning-focused events that I've attended, um, gain just as much from the um, the networking side of them as I have from the sort of presentations. Yeah, that's really good to hear, yeah. Great. Plenty of uh, food for thought there for um, 2020. I'm sure uh, by the end of the decade, this uh, podcast will be uh, hosted by a robot and the two guests (laughs) will all be robots. Uh, So uh, that's something to look forward to for all of us. Uh, Thank you very much for tuning in and thank you very much to Matthew and Darren. 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, tune in again soon. Thank you. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.